been great to be with you these last few days. I feel like I'm just getting started, but I know that you're ready for a, a break. This is a ninth service, eighth consecutive night in a row, and uh, you don't have revivals like that much anymore. And uh, in fact, I don't know of the last eight-night revival I have heard of. And so congratulations, you win the prize. I don't know what the prize is, but you win it tonight. Good to see you all and to uh, be able to look around and see the faces of my childhood staring back. And So good to be here with you. Well, I, I'm going to really work hard not to take much of your time tonight. I'm really feeling bad about this. It's not a Christian thing to do, preach long sermons. And... Um, I'm going to try to try to do better. I've repented whether or not I can walk the narrow line. That would be another question, but uh, I've repented. Gardner Taylor was one of our uh, great preachers of the 20th century, and he was a profound man. And I remember something that he said, which is so simple yet so profound that it uh, stuck with me. He said, in life... We uh, have to journey through life on foot, not by automobile. He was getting at something that uh, I think uh, is important. If you go on a trip by automobile, you have a lot of control over your surroundings. I'll be traveling back to Tennessee here in a few hours, and uh, it's uh, 400, 420 miles. I'm going to go by car. Lord willing, I'll be on, in car. I hope it's not by foot at any point. But uh, I'm going to go through uh, a lot of places. I'm going to go up some hills. I'm going to go down some hills. But uh, if the Lord will help me, I'm going to set the cruise control, and I'm going to go 78.5 miles an hour up the hill and back down the hill. Uh, I'm going to glide through. Uh, I don't know what the temperature will be, but I know what the temperature is going to be in my car. Um, There uh, may be animals out there. I'm not going to hear them. I'm not going to see them. Uh, I'm uh, going to go by car, but uh, I'm going to be able, Lord willing, if things go well, to just breeze through those 400 plus miles and make it to my destination, beating the ETA on my phone. Now, if I make that trip by foot, it's a different story. If I make that trip by foot, it's going to take a lot longer. Um, If it's hot outside, I'm going to feel the heat. If it's cold, I'm going to feel the cold. The hills are going to be a lot tougher to go up than they are going to be to go down. Uh, I am liable to run into some people that I would rather not be around, that I wouldn't have to deal with if I was in my car. I might get chased by a dog or two. Might even in West Virginia, well, I'll just stay away from the banjo playing. I don't know what's going to chase me in West Virginia. But there's many things you experience on foot that you wouldn't experience in an automobile. And life is lived on foot, not in a car. The point is is that there is no way to breeze through life, and to escape the hills, the valleys, the heat, the cold, the periods of barrenness, the periods 
of being around people that I would not have chosen to be around. There's no way to make it entirely through life without dealing with predators. And sometimes you're the prey, sometimes maybe you're the predator. But on foot, it's a different journey than in an automobile. Because of that, even when you read accounts in Scripture of great and mighty and wise and spiritual people, you find out that they have to travel the same roads that you and I do. And no matter how great and powerful and wise and godly, their hearts get broken, there's dryness that comes into their spirit and soul, there are the mountain peaks, but there are the times when they, by the mercy of God, have to be able to lie down in green pastures for restoration. There are moments in their life when the shatteredness enters and they stand in need again of spiritual revival. And I think we ought to take solace in that. In Psalm chapter 61, for instance, we have the words of King David. And as great as he is, as marvelous as he was, we remember those short seasons in his life when he failed God, but I would remind you that the epitaph of his life is, here lies a man after God's own heart. What we major on in David's life was by far the exception and not the rule. And yet we hear these words in the 61st Psalm. Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. David here is facing a situation in which he says that he is at the ends of the earth and his heart is crying out. What we think we know about this passage is that it was one of those passages written by King David when his son Absalom rebelled against him, took the majority of the kingdom and drove him into the wilderness. And so he says in this season of his life, he feels like he's at the end of the earth. Now, I don't know where the end of the earth was for David. It was probably on the other side of the Jordan River. My dad always said the end of the earth was Arkansas, but I think with David, he's on the other side of the Jordan River. Uh, the Jewish people thought of Jerusalem as the center of the world because that was the place where God dwelled in the temple at this point in the tabernacle. And so God occupied the center, and the farther you got from Jerusalem, the farther towards the ends of the world that you went. And so David is probably out there in the wilderness, beyond the Jordan River, wondering what is going to come of him. But again, I think that you feel that in his spirit. I don't know where the end of the world is for you. I don't know where your wilderness is, Wherever that is, you can think of that as we think of David. And then he says, not only do I feel like I'm at the end of the earth, but uh, he says, my heart is overwhelmed. My heart is overwhelmed. That's a military term. 
When you think of a city being overwhelmed, it's a, it's a city that seems like the walls are about to crumble. Uh, for some reason, you never know why you do these things, but for some reason last month, I watched uh, multiple movies about the Zulu overrun of the British, uh, and then the British fought back there in South Africa. And it's sort of fun to watch because the British are always, you know, there's a hundred of them and there's always two or 3,000 Zulus. And uh, the Zulus would just come in like a wave and the, the British were there with their single-shot guns and it was just uh, imminent that they were going to be overwhelmed. This is just this wave of people were going to wipe them out as, as a hurricane might just overrun a city. And David is saying, that's what my heart feels like. I'm in this place and I feel like there are so many enemies around the wall. It feels like me against a hundred. And my heart is feeling like it's just going to be overwhelmed. And for David, it's the feeling of losing that which he had invested his life and that which would have been most valuable to him. David is here in the wilderness, and again, I think the context is the rebellion of Absalom. And Absalom was the heir to the throne, his son. Now, David wasn't a great father by 21st century standards. And the truth of the matter is, even by 9th century BC standards, he wasn't a great dad. If I can speak in his defense just for a moment, though, in the ancient world, the fathers by our standards would have always been bad fathers because it didn't matter how many children you had, the lion's share of your thought and activity and time went into the oldest son. The oldest son was the one who had to be groomed for the throne. In the oldest son were all the hopes and dreams of the kingdom. The oldest son, should the oldest son not succeed in reigning wisely, you didn't just retire, you lost your life and your family got killed too because they didn't want anybody showing up with a claim to the throne. It seems vicious to wipe out an entire family, but that was the way of avoiding a civil war. You wipe out the family, you might kill 100, but you might save 10,000 people. You might avoid a civil war by killing anybody who had a claim to the throne. So that older son had the weight of the world on him, and because he would have the weight of the world on him, the father put all of his time into that oldest boy, and the other children, by our standards, would be very neglected. And Absalom was that boy for David. And when David looked at the future of the kingdom, uh, he was looking at Absalom. When David thought about what would come of his family and his legacy, it was all tied up in that boy Absalom, developing into the man he hoped he would be. When Absalom rebelled, it broke his heart. It broke his future. The most valuable thing David had was that heir to the throne that was being groomed as his successor and the protector of everything that he had spent his life building. So you can see how David would say, 
my heart is overwhelmed. I don't know what's the most valuable thing to you. I don't know what occupies your dreams. I don't know what it is that when you think of the future, that's the most important piece in the future. And I don't know if you've ever had that threatened and taken away from you. That's what David is feeling. He says, I'm in the far country. I feel like I'm a million miles from the sunlight. And it feels like my heart has been overwhelmed by vicious enemies. But the good news is, is this, if there is good news. David says, from the end of the earth, when my heart is overwhelmed, verse 1, hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. That's a good decision David makes. He says, when it seems like everything that is important to me is collapsing, I'm going to pray. And he, and he doesn't just say, I'm going to pray. He says, hear my cry, oh God. Cry is prayer on steroids. <laughs> cry is messy prayer. Crying isn't formal prayer. I remember when my father, who was a pastor many years ago, went to a church in North Carolina in Marion, the pastor. And they did something in Marion I have never seen or heard done before. And quite frankly, I, I'm not looking for it. It was very strange. But uh, there were people who had come from a place up in the mountains and had integrated into the life of that church. And when things got going in a very sad way, when people were singing sad songs or when there was grief in the room, they would well. And wow, there was this blood-curdling cry. I mean, I don't know who taught them how to do that, but if you were a person and you heard it for the first time in the pew behind you, I mean, it was a horrendous thing to hear and to experience. Um, I often thought, you know, for people who preach against speaking in tongues so much, cut out the welling, you know, give that up. Speak in tongues, cut out the yelling and crying. But uh, later years, I've, I've thought, you know what? If I was grieving that badly, maybe somebody who cried, joined me in that cry might in fact be comforting. Maybe there would be some comfort in that. But that's, I think, what David is doing. He's crying out. There's a way in which I think he's doing Psalm 126, verse 5 and 6, which is a powerful passage which teaches us, again, how to deal with the sorrows of life. That passage says, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping Bearing seed for sowing shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. It's a powerful image. David, or the psalmist, I should say, is saying, when you cry, when you have grief, when tears come into your eyes, you got to envision something. You have to say, my tears are like seeds 
and I have to sow them in the right place. And if I put my tears in the right place, there'll be a harvest that comes up. The, the, the tears are sown in prayer. We verbalize the tears in prayer, but the tears have to go into the right place. And that's not your friend's ear. That's not a bottle of beer in a bar. The tears have to be sown into the ears of God. We pray our tears. And as we pray our tears, it's as though a sower is putting seed into the ground. But what's interesting is that if you watch a sower, at least if you envision a sower in 9th century B.C., how did they sow? And one of the important things about the sowing is that you take the seed in handfuls and you throw it. You throw it. And so it's important when you cry to pray the tears. And it's important that the tears or the prayer goes into the ear of God. But the best way when you're overwhelmed with tears is to throw the seed. In other words, pray unedited prayers. Cry out. Just give it all to God. Pray the messiness. You say, what will God do? He'll hear your prayer. He can take what you're saying. Derek Kidner, the great theologian, said, God understands how you talk when you're desperate. He knows how you talk when you have a broken heart. So just throw the seed. Throw it. Don't inspect the seed. Don't look at the seed too closely. Just throw it into the ears of God. Seems to me that's what... David is doing. He says, I'm going to pray. I'm going to give it all to God. This grief that I carry. He says, in doing that, what I'm doing is I'm going to the rock then that's higher than me. So He says, I have this grief. I have this deep sorrow. I'm praying and I'm just not sowing the seed. I'm just not throwing out prayers, but it is my way of going to the rock that's greater than myself. It's interesting that he says God's a rock. Hey, what does that mean? Why call God a rock? Why not call him a tree? Why not call him, I don't know what else you would call him, but why call him a rock? And there, there, were, there were three images that the rock bore in the Old Testament. One is that a rock was a place of protection. In fact, here in this passage, uh, later on, he, he will talk about uh, there being uh, with God, I believe. Uh, maybe it's here, maybe it's not. I'm, uh, I'm looking for it, but I can't find it. I forgot my glasses. But uh, rocks were, were places of protection, You'd hide in the rock. You'd hide in the cave. You'd go into the cave for protection. You'd be covered by rock. There's a great place in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 26, where it says, you ought to be wise like the coney or the rock badger who hides in the rock. And that's a great image. The coney knows he's delicious. Everybody wants to eat him. He's like a chicken. 
and everybody can't eat him. He's got no natural self-defense. So what does the rock badger do? He gets into the crags of the rock. And in doing that, anybody who wants to eat the rock badger has to knock the mountain down. Oftentimes in church uh, in Tennessee, we sing, this is how I fight my battles. You might uh, say that I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. There's a way in which David is saying, as I pray, I'm going to the rock. As I'm crying out to God, I can sense his presence coming around me and I have a sense of confidence as he surrounds me. I have this confidence that if you want to get to me, you're going to have to go through God to get to me. The rock that's higher than I. And not only is he the rock, but he's the foundation from the storm, very similar to that. When Jesus spoke in uh, Matthew 7, he talked about how his teachings that flow from him are the rock. And when the storms come, the house built on the rock will not be destroyed. And so David, I think, again, is saying, listen, whatever is coming, whatever hurricane, whatever storm is coming, if I can get up on the rock, I don't know how bad the storm's going to be. What I know is that when the storm is finished, I'll still be standing. And then we know that the rocks were also places of shelter. There's a place in Isaiah chapter 31, I think verse 2, that talked about the, the rock that's a shelter in the barren land. And uh, people would travel in the desert in that day. And there would be large rocks and from the heat that uh, surrounded them, they would be able to get on the right side of the rock. For a period of time, they were sheltered from the heat that they were under. And maybe that's what David is saying. David's saying, in all the stress that I've been put under and everything that I've been facing in the, in the overwhelming nature of this season in my life, when I go to prayer, when I pour out my soul to God, it's like in that moment, he gives me shelter from my storm. He gives me shelter from the heat that I'm under. And I know that I'll have to get up and I'll have to travel a little more but when I, when I get out there and when the heat comes on me again, thank God there'll be another rock. There'll be another season of refreshment in my life provided by God. In spite of what I'm facing, I'm not going to thirst to death and I'm not going to burn to death. But he will keep my soul refreshed in this season. It's interesting that David says that he is the rock that is higher than I. I think David's having a period of reflection in his mind. Because in many ways, David had been the rock of Israel. I mean, when David sat on the throne, he was the greatest military mind of his day. David's a once-in-a-thousand-year genius. I mean, we're still reading the songs that he wrote. We're still studying his life 3,000 years later. He was the man who was always victorious on the battlefield. And so he was the rock. If you would have asked a Jew, how do you know you're going to be safe in Israel? 
they would say because the rock is on the throne, David is on the throne. But now David, in his own house, his son rapes his daughter. His wives are molested by his son. One son kills another. Absalom finally revolts. It used to be safe to live in David's kingdom. Now it's not even safe to live in David's house. He can't even protect his wives. He can't even protect his family. Uh, he used to be the great rock, the security, the, the, the one that puts shade over his people. They would be able to worship in his presence and sing his music. But he can't even go into the temple because he's on the other side of the Jordan. David says, thank God there's a rock that's higher than I. I wonder if you ever sense that in your own life. I mean, maybe, maybe you're a parent and everybody comes to you. You're everybody's banker, you're everybody's babysitter. Um, years and years and years and everybody comes to you, you carry them. You carry them. You're the rock. You're the rock. Long as you're living, they feel like they'll be okay. You're the safety net. Uh, you're the protector. They go to jail, you bail them out. You take care of them. There you are. You're the rock. And then you're introduced to your own weakness. Introduced to your own weakness. First time in your life, you find yourself having to have people help you. You're the one giving, but now you're the one who is well aware of your human frailty. That can happen, I think, as you age. I mean, in, in those years, you can be of, of your middle and youth, you're physically strong, you're able, uh, Everybody uh, says, you know, as long as you're at home, uh, nobody's afraid to go to sleep. If anybody breaks into that, this house, daddy will take care of it. I mean, you're the guy. Uh, everybody is cared for, they're protected, they're provided for. You're the great rock of your family. But if you live long enough, you don't end up feeling so much like a rock, you know. You feel the frailty of that time. There are moments in your life where you, you think that you're emotionally strong. And I'm a rock. I can take anything. And circumstances can come into your life and you find out that you are, in fact, a very fragile person that can be broken. Remember a season in my life when uh, there was a tremendous amount of stress. And I always thought that I could, and this was very foolish, I thought that I could always find an answer. When you're young and stupid, that's the way you think. Um, you think there's an answer for every problem. And I had a lot of problems. And uh, I was trying to 
fix the situation. And I thought, somehow, some way, I can make this work. And uh, then one day, and I think I've told you this, I was, I was introduced to the joys of panic attacks. And uh, I thought I was having a heart attack. I was driving down the road, and I, uh, I thought I was having a heart attack. And there was a gas station in the CVS. I thought, i got to get off the road. If you're going to have a heart attack, do it in the CVS. Go in the CVS. Finally got things under control, went home. And I was in a season of my life of panic attacks. And I remember sitting there um, talking to my best friend, And I said, something is broken inside of me. Something's broken. I I cannot take the pressure that I used to. Something is shattered inside of me. There's a weakness there where I used to feel strength. And if you live long enough and you travel enough roads in the wilderness, you might feel that someday, might sense that there's anxiety and panic and fear, and you have been a person who always had the answer and always rose to the occasion and could always find the answer to the problem. You could always find the path forward. And you find that you don't have the answers and you don't know the path forward. And there's a fragileness there that you can't hide anymore. David says, but I am glad that there is a rock that when my rock is cracked, when my rock is shattered, when I'm shattered, there is a rock that doesn't roll. There is a rock that isn't shattered. There is a rock that stands, and even though I'm shattered, I can get to the rock. I can find shelter in the time of storm. I can find protection. I can find strength in the storm, and I don't have to have it. I can find it in the rock. And so David says this simple word that I leave you with. He says, and so, Lord, lead me, lead me, the rock that's higher than me, lead me. It's the simple prayers that are the most effective, sometimes, sometimes. When your life is coming apart, you feel like you're on the far end of the earth, your heart is under attack, pray. Give it all to God. Say, Lord, lead me. My family's here. You see the shape my family is in. We've got to get here. I don't have a clue of how to get from here to there. Lord, lead us. Lead us. My marriage is here. I don't know how we got here. And I know we got to get there. I don't have an ideal of how we got here, and I don't know how we're going to get there. 
Lord, lead me. Lead me. Lead me. Father, my, uh, my heart is broken. I'm shattered. And I got to get to a place of wholeness. Uh, the, 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 I'm, I'm the valley of the shadow. I'm the valley of dry bones. I'm not only dusty, but the bones are laying all over the place. The bones have to come together. The flesh has to come up. That's what has to happen to my heart. It's, it's in pieces, and it's got to come back together. I don't know how to do that. This is where I am. Step by step, lead me. Lead me, Father. Father, I'm so angry. I mean, I... I want to say I'm eaten up by zeal. I'm just eaten up by. I'm just eaten up. And I, I'm angry. I've got to get over there where I can say I have to accept the things I cannot change, change the things I can, and have the courage to know the difference. And I just have to know the next decision to get there. Father, I'm, I'm in such a place of despair. I'm in a place of doubt. I have got to get to a place of faith. And I don't even know how to do that, Lord. Lead me. Lead me. Lead me, Lord, I will follow. Lead me. You know, I uh, pray with people and we teach our people and celebrate recovery when you're talking to a person who's lost their family, who's lost their job, who's lost their way. And they kneel down and they look at you, say, what am I going to do? The question you ask them is, what is the next right thing to do? They haven't given their life to Jesus, that's the next right thing to do. If they have not submitted their life to Jesus, that's the next right thing to do. But life is lived in steps. What is the next right step to take? Do. If I can take enough right steps, I can get to where I need to get. But the problem is I'm not smart enough to do that. So I have to say, Lord, lead me. Lead me. Stand with me this evening. Very simple thought. Now I leave it with you. If you can identify with David, we can identify with him. If you say, you know, not physically where he is, but emotionally, he and I are in the same neighborhood. Then I think what the Bible is telling you to do is to pray 
say, Lord, lead me. Do it now. Do it when you get up in the morning. Do it every time you bless, pray for your food tomorrow. Say, and Lord, I thank you for this food, and lead me, Lord. Lead me. Lead me, Father. It's, it's the prayer of a blind person who doesn't know the way. It's the prayer of a child who is dependent on their parents. It is the way in which we humble ourselves and become as children and receive help from our Heavenly Father. Father, I pray for those who stand here today. And Father, we go back to the original thought that we started with, that life is lived on foot. There are mountains to climb, there are valleys to go through. There's rain that falls, Sometimes the sun comes out and beats upon us. Dry places, there's windy places. Places where we feel like we're being chased and followed. And in this life, on this road we travel, particularly in the moments that are most difficult, we remind ourselves in this moment that we don't have to have the answers. There is a rock that's higher than us. We don't have to have everything together in our life in the moment. There's a rock that will protect, that will shelter us, that we can hide in. Lead us to the time of refreshment. Lead us to the place of acceptance. Lead us, Father, to the place of wholeness. Lead us to the place of faith, one step at a time, for the glory of your great name. It's in that great name, the name above all other names, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.